0: This is the Hacker Valley Studio podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology.
1: What's going on everyone and welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. This episode is brought to you by Thinks Canary. If you've been a part of any type of breach, you've probably found out way too late, or even worse, you haven't found out yet. Canaries are devices you drop onto your network and compose as a vulnerable device, a router, or even SCADA equipment that malicious insiders and attackers can't help themselves but to access. Canaries don't require any maintenance, and they set up in under 4 minutes and that's it. After the attacker betrays their presence by tripping over them, you receive one high-fidelity alert to let you know that badness is happening. Thinks Canaries have been deployed on all seven continents and should be in your environment, too. If you want to check out what all the experts in our industry are saying about Thinks Canary, you can visit canary.tools forward slash love. Check them out at canary.tools and tell them Hacker Valley Studio sent you. In this episode, we've brought in Gary Hayslip. He's been the CISO in public and private sector, and is currently the CISO at SoftBank. He's mentored many and scaled his efforts by writing a few books, including the CISO Desk Reference Guide, a practical guide for CISOs. We've dived deep into Gary's background and learned what makes him tick and such an exceptional figure in the cybersecurity industry. If you love this content and want to check out more, Please visit and drop us a line at HackerValley.Studio and become a patron and get access to bonus content and episodes at Patreon.com forward slash Studio. Let's jump right into it.
0: What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley Studio
1: with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back here again. We brought in a big name and a special guest. We've brought in Gary Hayslip. He is the Chief Information Security Officer at SoftBank. He's also a mentor, not only to me, but another group of individuals. And he's even an author. He's authored, co-authored the CISO Desk Reference Guide and recently Practical Advice for CISOs at Small Business and Medium-Sized Businesses. Welcome
2: to the show, Gary. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for uh, having me.
1: Gary, when
0: we first started- talking immediately, I knew that we had a lot in common for folks that don't know anything about you just yet would love to hear a little bit about your background, your background with the military, your background in leadership, and what you're doing today.
2: Well, that's actually quite a lot <laughs> 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 sure, first... know everything <laughs> yeah, let's talk about everything for the next thirty years almost the last thirty years actually i mean i I'm one of those people that that got into security. I've always been fascinated with technology. You know, so even when I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old, I was taking things apart, breaking things. You know, I started, you know, hacking at an early age, which drove my parents nuts. But I was always fascinated, you know, by technology. And, you know, when I, you know, kind of ashamed to admit it, but when I went, you know, when I first went to college, you know, at 18, like everybody does, you know, coming right out of high school, I really wasn't ready for it. You know, you know, my first 18 months in, I think I partied more than I went to class and I had a 0.8 GPA, which was pretty bad. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, you know, and I, I worked really hard for the, you know, another year to bring it up to at least the sea. But, you know, I decided, you know, enough was enough. I just needed to take responsibility and I joined the military, you know, and so I joined the U.S. Navy. And through the U.S. Navy, you know, I did my bachelor's, did my master's, and and paid for all my professional certs, and actually, you know, found a career, you know, found a passion, which was IT and cybersecurity. You know, I did 20 years in the military. I'm kind of unique in the fact that I actually was stationed on both coasts. I did, you know, about 10 years on the East Coast and 10 years on the West Coast, and I deployed you know, multiple times on the East Coast and multiple times on the West Coast. So because of that, I mean, I've been through everything from the North Sea, you know, to the Persian Gulf and back and did eight deployments, you know, been to about 54 different countries. So wow. I, mean, it would say, I mean, it was it was a good 20 years, you know, that I that I put in. And in that time, I worked extensively with, you know, technology and, you know, did my degrees and did my certifications. And at the same time, you know, still was able to serve my country. So, I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was good, but I mean, as, as most of us who've served, you come to a point where it's time to take off the uniform and then, you know, for a lot of us, there's, it's pretty much stark raving terror because you're all of a sudden, you know, everything's been taken care of for the last couple of years. Now, all of a sudden I'm supposed to step into a whole different world, you know, where there is no safety net, where it is what you make of it, where, you know, you know, and so coming into coming into the civilian community was, you know, was very different, you know, for me. Luckily for me, I went into the federal service, you know, I went into civil service for about six years and there I was a deputy CIO and a CISO and a chief privacy officer and thoroughly enjoyed it, you know, really enjoyed working federal civil service and, you know, helping again, helping the U.S. Navy. But after I had finished my, my MBA, I had spent a ton of time working with cybersecurity startups, and I was really fascinated about private industry. And uh, so for me, it was, you know, and I have to admit, I mean, at the time when I was in federal civil service for the US Navy, my boss was a great guy by the name of Palmer Tasker, who since Palmer since retired and is enjoying being at home. He was our CIO and an amazing mentor. You know, I've always had really good mentors, some of them, you know, to kick me in the butt and some of them uh, cheer me on and some of them to smack me upside the head and ask me, what the hell are you doing? Homer was one of those that did all of that, you know, because we spent so much time together. But he was one of those that also said, you know, at my six year mark in civil service, he goes, dude, he goes, you know, you've outgrown this. He goes, you need to move, you know, and, and so he pretty much kicked me out and told me to move, you know, and that's where I, um, that's where I jumped over to the city. Yeah, you know, I jumped over to the city of San Diego for four years. And I have to admit, you know, most people when they hear that you've been a CISO for a city, they immediately think that you're just a government worker. They don't understand cities the size of San Diego. They're they're businesses. I mean, Mm -hmm. the city of San Diego is a $5 billion business when you really look at it. You know, I mean, it. you know, 40 departments, 25 networks, 50,000 plus endpoints, you know, with, you know, connections, all kinds of federal agencies and state government agencies and, you know, providing services to three, four million customers, you know, the citizens here in San Diego County. I mean, it was fascinating. I mean, I was there for four years, built out the security program, built the teams, worked extensively with a lot of smart city projects, learned a lot about convergent infrastructure and working with police departments and fire departments and just all kinds of IOT and OT, you know, infrastructure, like public works and stuff. It was fascinating. I mean, I I learned a a ton, but at the same time, you know, at the end of about four years, you know, I was burned out. You know, I, I think it was then really in, in my career, as I was getting ready to leave the city of San Diego and jump into private industry that I really started having, you know, thoughts in my head that, you know, I love this career, but this career is also killing me. Yeah. And I was, you know, stressing a lot. Even the doctor was saying, you know, hey, this is way too much stress. You're going to have a stroke and you're not even 45 yet, you know. And it was like, um, and it was, I think that was one of the first times where I had really started questioning what I was doing. Yeah. And then, of course, years later, I ended up giving a speech you know, with Rick McElroy at RSA last year about what was wrong with the CISO role. And it was all about stress and self-management and all the things that are happening now in the community. You yeah, I think that was when I was at the city of San Diego, I think that was one of the first times where out of the military environment, where I had a chance to actually see what was happening in our community and see what was happening to myself. And then actually speaking with other CISOs, see that it just wasn't me, that there was You know, there was a bunch of my peers that were having similar issues, you know. And so, I mean, you know, for me, luckily for me, I mean, I left the city of San Diego and then went and spent two and a half years at Webroot as their CISO, where I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, I mean, had amazing teams. Webroot was one of those companies where they didn't care if you lived in Denver or not, as long as you could commute and travel. Um, So I got a chance to travel a lot, spend a lot of time in Colorado Um, in Denver, where they have an amazing, really, really good CISO, not just CISO, but cyber community, very close knit, a lot of startups really enjoyed, you know, my two and a half years at WebRoot traveling back and forth and working with them and the product teams and working with our customers. And that's where I got the idea about writing a a security book for small businesses because of the fact that WebRoot has about 70% of the SMB market and about 30% of the MSP market and part of my job was actually working with customers and listening to them and and the issues that they were having and what I was seeing was a lot of SMBs besides being a target didn't really have security people or or they might have some IT people who were kind of doing security but you know they security is a discipline it's one of those things that you learn over time that you take classes in that you you know you just don't turn a switch and you know security and that's what led me to writing you know my my most recent book you know the essential guide for cybersecurity for small business for SMBs was it was that I mean I got the idea about two years ago and started putting it together and you know and by November last year I had it all done ready to go and I went ahead and you know we released it you know just before RSA in February this year and it's actually done really well I mean a lot of people read it and really liked it but I mean I wrote it because it was designed for security practitioners you know, who are working for small and medium businesses, you know, to kind of give them a guide to start with, and I'm sure they'll kind of use it as a baseline, and then they'll add to it. And you know, and I'm I'm one of those people that I'm more than happy to take input. If you think I should write a part two, and you and here's a whole bunch of other areas you want me to cover, let me know. <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll, I'll be happy to you know write a second part to it, and any way that I can help, you know, you know, help our community and especially the uh, the SMB side of the house because I know they they really need it. So during
0: that, I, I had like a thousand questions, but I think I can get all of my questions into into one question. For your your book, one of my favorite parts of your book was the, the section about what CEOs need to know about security manager role and the security program. I think, you know, to touch on a little bit about the frustrations of being a CISO and some of the stresses and things like that, a lot of it has to do with the relationship between... The CISO and the head of security and the rest of the C-suite. What what inspired you to write that section of the book?
2: I think it was. I mean, there's a big thing I I found that many of my peers, you know, for the longest time, when you when you really look at it, for the longest time, the CISO role really wasn't this, called CISO. It was basically, you know, you were you were the information security officer, or you were the director of security, or you were, you know, you know, it didn't really elevate beyond, you know, being a security manager, and you were usually buried several layers below, you know, the CIO. I'd say over the last 10 years, as security started becoming more important, and that role started to elevate and started taking on more, you know, more responsibility and more visibility, you know, within the business infrastructure, you know, you find um, there's still a lot of systems that are very technically oriented and i'm looking at you also need to be strategically oriented and that strategic piece there's a lot of soft skills involved and to be successful you need to be able to have a foot in you know each sphere and you need to be able to operate on both sides you need to be technically competent but you also need to be strategically and business savvy and a lot of that is being able to speak that language understanding that you Honestly, you have to have stakeholders as champions for you and your program who are not going to be technically oriented, who are going to be in some of the other business units. And you have to be able to work with them and talk to them, understand their concerns and their needs and what they need from you and your team. And, you know, I, I I brought, I wrote that whole, that whole chapter to kind of get them to understand there's going to be times where if you're not talking with the CEO, you're still going to be talking to a senior exec. And you need to know how to have that discussion. And a big part of that discussion is just shutting up and listening and listening to their issues, listening to their needs, listening to what is going on in the business and what the business needs from security. You know, and then from that, you know, you can then take a look at your program and figure out, are you tailored to be able to deliver that? Or do you have some adjustments? And sometimes those adjustments that you need to make, you're not going to know unless you bring in some of your peers in the other business units and get their input as to what you should prioritize and what you should focus on. You know, you're know, you used to a framework. Hey, I've gone ahead. I've done an assessment. I've got these security gaps. This stuff is critical. I really need to work on this. However, how critical it is To the business. You don't know that unless you actually are able to effectively communicate with these other business units and get their input. And when you start doing that, I found, you know, I I really got, I really started doing it heavily after I left the military and started operating more with like a business mindset at the city. You know, and to give you an example, I mean, at the city, you know, they didn't really care who I was. (laughs) You know, they had no idea what a CISO was. You know, but I had 40 departments that I needed to go ahead and listen to me and do you know, what I needed from a security standpoint to reduce our risk and to better protect data and to better protect, you know, uh, our projects and stuff. And I found, you know, to be effective, there was a lot of fish tacos and beer. There was a lot of discussions after work or, or taking people to lunch. You know, you actually had to show that you cared, you know, and not that you wanted them to do what I needed. I actually cared in what they were doing and what their problems are. And there were times where I could help them. And there were times where I could refer them to somebody else. And there were times where I just needed to shut up and just listen because they just needed to vent, you know? And, but in that process, I learned a lot about the business and I learned a lot about how things were interconnected and networks and a lot of legacy infrastructure that I didn't know about. And when I further carried this on at WebRoot, at WebRoot, I reported to the CFO, you know, and he was thinking that I needed to go ahead and be moved and report to somebody else. I said, no, 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 no. I want to be here. I want to report to you. And for two and a half years, as part of the C-suite, I had a ringside seat to go ahead and watch how a business was run. And it was fascinating, you know, and there were times where I stepped in because it was a security or a risk piece, but there was a lot of times where all I needed to do was just step back and learn you know and and that was it let operations do their thing let marketing do their thing let sales do their thing it was really interesting and a lot of times running through my head i was thinking about okay how is my team supporting that project all right i know dev is i've got nine different teams that are working on different products how are we supporting them? How do we have visibility into their issues? You know, do I really need to go ahead and step in and do something, or can I provide a solution and let them do it and just give me the results? You know, I had things like that running through my head and figuring out how I could partner with them, and that's really what what led to that chapter was when I brought it down, you know, from a macro level down to where an SMB needed to be at for a practitioner. There was certain things that they needed to make sure that they brought across when they talked to their CEO or their owner or whoever it was just so they would understand the importance of just doing basic security for their organization.
1: Those are, those are some great points. One thing that I look at from a practitioner perspective is getting the individuals to do what I need them to do. So maybe I have the buy-in from stakeholders or leadership or executives for a specific security control or policy to be implemented but uh, struggling to get started with the team that's going to be doing the implementation what, what, have, what have you found with some of the small businesses that have a small security staff and kind of working with other teams to actually get the body of work done with after bought in
2: yeah <clears throat> i mean i can tell you the The biggest thing I've found and, you know, and and talking with, you know, other CISOs and other security directors and stuff I mentor, you know, I think one of the biggest fallacies is most of us kind of think that, you know, security, we've got our swim lane, we got our area in which we operate. And you forget that the fact that really security cannot operate without IT. We can't operate without, you know, these other business units because security is so intertwined in business operations, you know, the security stack is intertwined with the IT stack, whether you like it or not, you know, and so you have to work together. You know, you're going to, you know, even if you're going to go ahead and stand up a new solution, you're probably going to have to somebody, have somebody in IT open ports on this firewall or spin up this server. I mean, there's, there's things that you're going to have to go ahead and do. And what you'll find is, you know, what, what you'll find a lot of times is, you know, CISOs or, you know, security directors, people I've worked with, you know, they're kind of used to, you know, operating in a box with a couple of people outside that they're used to dealing with. And I'm trying to go ahead and tell them, no, it's a lot more wider ranging than that. You know, and you're going to need these people's help and these people's buy-in to be able to get things done. You know, especially if you want to influence people and get them to do things like what you were talking about, because a lot of that is culture. You know, and especially in a small business, you know, where if, say you've got, a you know, an SMB, 100 employees, they've been around for eight years, that's a family. Right. No matter how you look at it, that's a family. Everybody knows each other. They've got a specific way that they do things. They've worked together for the last eight years. And then from a security perspective, if you want to put some type of new security control in place or a new policy in place, you're going to up upend eight years worth of how they've been doing it? I don't think so. Unless you can get cultural buy-in, which comes with trust. And so if they look at you as somebody that they can trust, that they know that you have the business and their best interests at heart, you know, if they, you know what I'm saying? So it's, and that comes with visibility. That comes with, you can't run a security program with the door closed. You got to open it up. You got to go ahead and have lunch and learns, you know, or brown bag lunches. You got to show them what you're doing what you're working on, why you're working on it. You got to ask for their help to be part of test groups because, hey, we want to go ahead and we're looking at rolling, uh, you know, proof point out for our email platform and we need some people to be guinea pigs. (laughs) You You got to get them involved, you know, and what I found is when you are visible and they know who members of the security team are and the projects you're working on and the things that you're doing, you get buy-in. They'll argue with you. They'll push back. Sometimes you meet in the middle. Sometimes you got to be pretty adamant because there's a risk involved or a regulatory reason why. But the thing about it is, is you are now engaged in the culture and over time, the culture will accept you and you'll find your way in with the way things are, are, are being done. But you have to have that. And it takes work. It's not easy, and, but you have to do it, you know, and even in a small business, you know, if you're one person trying to get things done, the best way that you can go ahead and do it is you look over at the IT side, you look over at, you know, some of the other departments that are doing stuff. You find some people that are technically savvy and you kind of deputize them. <laughs> you, know, you get them involved <laughs> with what you're doing and beca- before you know it, you become a posse <laughs> and, you, and you try to get things, you do it together. That, that's basically what you do. You don't wing it by yourself. You ask for help and you get people to go ahead and work with you. That's a perfect segue into my next question. One,
0: in my opinion, one of the most overlooked aspects of a security program is security metrics. There's a section in your book, security metrics, telling your value story. I think that's huge. Telling your story to peers, telling your story to leadership is crucial to show not only the health of your organization, but also your impact for the business. So for those people that are coming in as maybe the first security hire or maybe it's a smaller team, what are some good nuggets of wisdom for them to show their impact and actually produce metrics that are showing value from a business perspective?
2: Yeah, I mean, I can tell you the problem is that, you know, people's, you know, metrics are very personal. You know, they're they're different for every team, they're different for every company because it's technology and the business. I mean, I can tell you that, you know, I look at it as... You know, when you, when you're doing cybersecurity, if you're running a team or if you're building a security program, if you're, if you're a one person show, whatever it is, you know, you may not realize it, but security impacts the business and it can be a negative impact or it can be a positive impact. And also the fact that, you know, security does not make the company money. However, you can, if it's done correctly, you can enhance, you know, business operations. You can enhance, you know, those teams that are actually making the company money, you know, by reducing risk or providing other services that, you know, that they need. And, you know, so there's ways to go ahead and do it, you know, and I said, you know, and, and the reason that you go ahead and you collect metrics is they're going to expend resources. They're going to expend money. You're going to have to, you know, do things over time. And if you're doing this, if you're doing this stuff, you want to be able to show that, you know, whatever you're, whatever you're spending money on, They're getting some type of business value. I mean, you know, a case in point, like when I was at the city of San Diego, we had, you know, you got to remember we had 10,000 employees, but, you know, we had probably had about 30 machines a day that would get infected with one thing or another, which is actually very, very tiny, you know, but each one of those machines you know we had a we had contractors in the help desk so each one of those machines you know a help desk person would go out get the machine they'd have to go ahead and select the machine put the new image on put the user stuff back and so what we figured out was the time that it would take you know the contractor to go out there we also figured out the lost productivity for the employee and when we got done we figured out that it was it was roughly about I think it was like about fifteen hundred bucks a, you know each time that happened so think about you know fifteen hundred you know, when you count, I think that's about right. When, when you go ahead and you count like the number of hours that it took and the whole process and the lost productivity and everything else. Now think of that about roughly 30 machines a day. And it adds up. You know, I mean, we, we added it up and we were like, whoa, yeah, you know, this is some pretty large numbers by the end of the year when you really think of, you know, how much this happens. And then what we found was when we went ahead and we we changed out our AV, we changed out our EDR. You know, we tightened up at the endpoint. and we tightened up some of our network security stuff that we were doing as we were improving the security stack. Then it went down to less than 10. So then I was able to show from a metric standpoint how much cost savings we just did, you know, because, you know, 10 less machines. There was, here's a big chunk of money that we just saved you, you know, and you equate that to how much you spent and we actually saved them quite a lot of money. You know, then the discussion was one of the metrics we started tracking was, well then, you know, okay, we want to keep it around less than 10 per month. So that was one of our metrics that we tracked over time that let us know that from a maturity standpoint, at least on the endpoint security piece, we were meeting, you know, a good baseline for us. You know, you know what I'm saying? And not every company would track that, you know, And one of the things that I did was, you know, the Center for Internet Security, you know, and and you can Google this, the Center for Internet Security actually has a a policy of security metrics, and there's about 100 of them. You know, you can, if you, you know, if you Google like security, the Center for Internet Security security metrics, there's actually this, you can actually download it. There's about 100 metrics that they kind of recommend is, it's kind of like your baseline various security metrics. And what's cool about it is they also will tell you you know, the good, bad, nuggly. You know, they'll, they'll kind of tell you, all right, this metric, if it falls within this rating, it should be good. If this rating, and it's medium. If this rating, that's a high. If this rating, it's a critical. So, you know, I don't recommend using all of them. But if you look at those and read through them, it kind of gives you an idea on how to build them. It kind of gives you an idea also looking at your security stack and your operations and your team and what the company is doing, things that you might want to actually start pulling metrics on. Because the biggest thing is, is that, you know, doing metrics to just do metrics is worthless. You know, because you want to be able to make sure the data is measurable. You want to make sure whatever you're measuring it off of is something that you control. You know, you want to be able to use that data, as I mentioned, to tell a value story. There's a reason why you are taking it. And especially if you go before the board, you want to be able to lay metrics down that show this is how more secure we are. This is how much less risk we have. This is how much we've improved a specific process or we've improved the business through cybersecurity.
1: That, that's a great resource. And those are some great points to highlight that metrics can start to show, like especially when you're looking at the amount of unnecessary or repetitive or work that could be done by another means that a human or a process is doing that costs unnecessary uh, amounts of money. Those metrics will also probably highlight Um, the fact that there could be burnout for engineers, analysts, and even people like you in the CISO position. What are some things that you do to kind of keep your mind fresh and to avoid burnout?
2: That's a good thing. I I mean, I think, you know, for me, you know, what I find is I like to, I tend to go on walks. I like to go on, we have a nice, you know, hiking trail here you know, close by where I live at. And I find a lot of times when I go on walks, I come up with ideas for things to write, you know, so I always carry something that the jot notes down while I'm out walking. It just helps me clear my mind. I also like to build Legos. Oh, (laughs) nice. Are you a master builder? No, I am. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a master poser, I guess. I, I, I love, uh, you know, I, I like building them and then kind of, you know, kind of hanging them up, especially like star Wars ones though. I think, you know, I just bought the, the star destroyer. It's a big, you know, 5,000 piece one. That's going to take my sons and a while and I, a while to put it together. And I realized there's no way we're hanging that thing up. That thing's like three and a half feet long and it's massive, Yeah. You know, <laughs> Jeez. And, uh, but uh, you know, so I like doing stuff like that. I read a lot whether it's science fiction or whether it's, you know, it or whether it's, you know, uh, policy or, you know, or religion or whatever. I mean, I, I constantly am reading. I also write, you know, whether it's articles for Forbes or whether it's I'm working on several books right now. So it's, you know, I've, I've got a lot of things. And then I also do things like I like to be outside, you know, a lot when I can. So I I raise roses and, uh, you know, try not to kill them, but I'm doing pretty good with it so far, you know, uh, just, you know, things like that, that, kind of give me time to decompress, you know, things to to think about and relax, you know, and spending time with my family. And, you know, and I find a lot of times when you, you get really stressed and you're putting in 10, 15 hour days, and then you're just, you know, you're exhausted and you miss the family time. You miss the chance to talk with, you know, the spouse and the kids. I mean, my, my, my wife and I have been together for over 30 years and we do everything together as a team. And she knows what to watch for. She knows when I'm stressing. And, you know, and she'll stop me and say, you know, you need to go take a walk or you need to do something, you know. And so it's one of those things that's the reason why I've written articles on it and I've been talking about it just because I've, I've lost friends, you know, at a very young age from heart attacks who were sissos. you know, it was the reason why Rick McElroy and I put our talk together because we, we both have lost close friends or we've seen friends just burn out just blow their, you know, through alcohol or drugs and just throw their careers out the window, you know, and because of the stress. And, you know, so it's just, it's one of those things that, you know, we actively promote that we need to take care of each other. We need to watch for it. You need to watch for it in your team. You need to definitely, from a self-care perspective, watch for it in yourself. You know, I mean, I, I look at the, you know, I definitely believe in leaving a legacy and, going ahead and mentoring and working with the next generation coming behind me, but I want to see, I want to be here and see that generation grow up and become new CISOs. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be dead, you know? So I like, right. I mean, a lot of people that have been in previous teams of mine, I keep track of all of them and I still mentor them and, you know, and I celebrate with them when one of them becomes a director or one of them's in a deputy role. And, and I'm just stoked that they're, you are they're, they're growing in their, in their careers. And I want to be here for that.
0: Yeah, I think you might be in my head because every single time you start to say something, it leads into the question that I actually have coming up. Just more evidence that that we're brothers. One thing that I've noticed about you is that you're definitely a leader. You're a leader of people. You're a leader in our Tinker Tribe family. You're a leader of CISOs, leader of your community. Is there a story that happened in your life that sort of formulated your, your style and your brand of leadership?
2: You know, I mean, I think a lot of it was just, it's, it's the mentors that I've had, you know, the, you know, my first mentor was, was my father, you know, and I remember when I left for boot camp. you know, it's four o'clock in the morning, recruiters outside, ready to go in and take me to MEPS you know, to the military entry processing station for those of you that don't know what a MEPS is. And, you know, and it was one of the last, one of the few times I've seen my dad cry. You know, my dad had been in the military for almost 30 years and, you know, he basically pulled me aside gave me a hug and went ahead and said, you know, you go ahead and you get as much training as you can. You use them to go ahead and, you know, get yourself that career that, you know, I know is destined for you. But he goes, one thing though, he goes, as you grow in your career, you're going to be in charge of people. Don't forget you're responsible for them. Take care of them. And then I walked out the door and left for boot camp. you know, and that kind of, in a way that kind of molded my view moving forward. And, and, then many of the mentors I've had, you know, several of them were, were servant leaders who really took care of their people and their organizations. And when, you know, and the, and I think that's one of the things that I see a lot with us, a lot of us that are vets that are in the military is the, the, the willingness to serve, the willingness to go ahead and be part of something greater and to be, and to be able to give back. You don't always have to lead. I'm just as willing to go ahead and follow, you know, I just want to be there to go ahead and help. And, uh, you know, and so, I mean, it's, you know, those type of mentors that I've had have really shaped, you know, my view on things. And the thing about it is, is that, my time in the in cybersecurity, I mean, I to this day I still consider myself blessed that I found this community and that I found you know the different employers and the jobs that I've been doing. You know, working at SoftBank. Who'd ever thought I'd ever be at SoftBank? You know, I mean, I didn't have experience in financial services, but you know, Will Bolivar, my CIO, said I don't care about that. He goes, "You can wear." He goes, "You got experience wearing different hats. You're willing to get your hands dirty. I can turn you loose, and I don't have to worry about you." You know, and I was like, okay, (laughs) you know, know, and and that's what I'm saying is that, you know, for me, you know, the people that I have served under and I've worked with, you know, constantly I've had that view of, you know, leading and taking care of your people and getting to understand them and know what they need and where they want to go. And one of the things I've learned as a CISO is that you're not always going to hold your teams forever they're going to grow up. They're going to move. They're going to, So, I mean, make sure that they're ready so that when they leave, you know, it's on a good note and they're ready for their next move, their next step, their next move up. You know, don't let them, you know, sit fat, dumb and happy in one position and never really volunteer for anything. You know, they need to be looking at what they're going to do for their career and for themselves. And, you know, I mean, I, for my staff, you know, when we set goals, they may have two goals that are related to the team or the projects we're doing, but I always make sure they have one professional goal. You know, I always make sure that they're doing something for their improvement, you know, and daily when I, when I do check-ins with them and when we do have discussions, I'm looking at, you know, where they're at and, you know, and all of this was, was trained in me by people that, you know, I served under you know, that I worked with, you know, or people that I, you know, I had the privilege of working with and watching how they, you know, manage their staffs. And, you know, and so I've always wanted to emulate that. I've always wanted to go ahead and be the type of leader that could go ahead and raise and, you know, an amazing team and help them get to the level that they need to go. And at the same time, being able to take care of our organization, And even if they have to, you know, if they leave and they move on, you're still there to go ahead and mentor them and still, because they're still providing to the community. There's, you know, we're a large community, but we're also very small. You know, it's very interconnected. It's amazing how, how many people know each other.
1: It really is. It's such a small, not only small world, but even smaller community that we're in. And I think those are some great examples of kind of receiving mentorship and, and also giving it back, and I hope everyone's taking notes on, on that. I know I was uh, writing a few things down myself, along with a few of the resources that you gave. One of the things that I always think about is managing oneself, and kind of how do you get to the next level to where you're going? So if you were a mentor to yourself, looking at your life from a high level, what would be a piece of advice that you would give yourself
2: today? I mean, I think the thing you know, that I look at today is I'm impatient at times. Yeah, I'm definitely impatient with myself. And that's one of the things I've really had to learn. And I could probably hear my wife laughing in the background when she was in here listening <laughs> to me, you know. Um, yeah. The And it's one of the biggest, you know, concerns I, I've always worked with myself to realize that, you know, things are going to happen in time, you know, and you've got to be willing to go ahead and break things up, focus on them piece at a time, and, you know, give yourself time to learn, give yourself time to... You know, to to process and understand, you know what what you need to do for the next level or the, that that next cert or that next job, whatever you're you're going to be working on. I mean, I can tell you, for me, you know, in cybersecurity, I'm I'm self taught. You know, when I was in the military, I worked on advanced weapons systems. I worked in IT and electronics, and I fell into cybersecurity by accident. You know, and I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the idea. Uh, So much so that I built a lab in my garage, drove my wife nuts. But I, you know, and this was before, you know, VMware and virtualized stuff. So, you know, I had shelves, I had a whole shelf of Linux computers and a whole shelf of Windows computers. And I actually had a full rack of Cisco equipment and I had everything all interconnected and I taught myself how to hack and I paid for my own certs, you know, and how I did all of that was I mind mapped everything. You know, I figured out I needed to start here and I needed to go ahead and work on these certs and then these certs would lead to this. And so I had a whole list that went for like four years. You know, and I mapped out four years where I wanted to be from point A to point Z, you know, and each of the different pieces and what I would need to do. And I did it. I mean, I, I held myself strictly to it, you know, and even if I was on deployment, I'd bring my Cisco books with me because I was studying for my CCMP, you know, I'd be sitting there in the chief's mess and I'd have Cisco stuff open and I'm taking notes and everything, you know, and other chiefs would come in and be, Hey, Gary, what you doing? You know, and they just kind of look at it. And they're like, okay, I don't understand that. And they just wander off. But. Of to me, it was, I was driven, you know, because this is what I wanted to do, you know, and I knew that I needed to be at a specific level. I knew I needed to learn this. And, and to this day, you know, I have a list of, you know, specific certs that I'm working on, or I have a, I have like a four page list of art, you know, ideas for articles. And, and I do, I, I map things out and I, I'm very methodical about it and I, and I work at it, you know, but at the same time, you know, I have to I have to keep myself on track. Believe me, if I could go ahead and not work on something and go play World of Warcraft or go read a book or, <laughs> or be lazy, I'd do it. You know, so I know procrastination is also another one of my issues. You know, so I, I do. I, I, I watch that, you know, quite a lot. You know, because I know in our community it doesn't sit still. The threats we face are not static. The just the change in technology itself is just phenomenal. You know, if you are going to be an effective CISO and be able to lead a team that provides value, you've got to stay up with the threats. You've got to stay up with the changing technologies. You've got to continuously evaluate your security stack. You got to be able to provide good advice when the CIO asks, or when the COO or the CTO asks. You know, so and that a lot of that is knowledge. A lot of that is reading. A lot of that is going to conferences. A lot of that is is logging into webinars and you know or being in members of different professional groups, you know, and go into their luncheons and stuff and listen in the speakers. You know, you do it because I feel it makes you a better system. It makes you more well-rounded to be able to provide, you know, that value. You know, this is the risky issue we need to be aware of. This is the workaround for this problem. We can't put the security control in place, but here's some other ideas I think we should take a look at. What do you guys think? You know, you can't offer that if you do not you know, keep yourself educated. If you do not stay involved in the community, you know, you need to be in forums like Tinker Tribe and you know, and other you know Slack channels and stuff, and be willing to ask for help and be willing to give it. You know, when when peers ask for it, because they because they're running into the same issues that you have. You know, nobody's unique here. We've all got issues. You know, and we're all dealing and in, in fighting the fight. You know, at our at our company, it's just a little different. Tools are different. So yeah, I mean, you, know, you got to be able to help each other.
0: So much brilliant advice here. I hope people are taking notes, just like Ron said. Gary, thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule to chat with us. Thank you for all that you do for mentoring folks and you know producing content, writing books, being on LinkedIn. Speaking of LinkedIn, what are some ways that if people want to stay in touch with you, stay in touch with the things that you're doing, what are some ways that people can do that?
2: Pretty much, you can go ahead and you know, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, or you know the the books that I write with with Bill Bonney and Matt Stamper, our our website it's you know cisodrg You can hit our uh, our website and uh, be able to contact me there also, you know, uh, and and the website's linked on my my, my LinkedIn profile. Anyhow. But, you know, pretty much I just tell people to you know, reach me out on LinkedIn, though a lot of people also like to chat with me on Peerless or chat with me on Twitter.
1: Great. Well, thanks again, Gary. It's been a pleasure and we'll be sure to put all those resources to your books and also your LinkedIn and the details on the, this episode and see everybody next time.
2: Thank you.